take your Bible tonight, turn to the book of James, the book of James chapter number three, James chapter number three. I do so very much love the book of James. And though there is some discussion among scholars, I do believe with all of my heart that we have a clear idea of who wrote this epistle and even a time in which this epistle was written. And I love the tone towards the church, the tone towards the believer, and the responsibility of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we were just talking about, what it truly means to be a Christian. And tonight, with the Lord's help, we'll begin a series out of James over the next only the Lord knows how long. There'll be multiple opportunities for us to go back into James. But I want us to begin kind of in the middle of James, James chapter 3, and just a little preview of where James was in his writing. James chapter 3. Let's pray and then we'll get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, God, thank you again for today. God, what it's been already. Lord, for the Holy Spirit of God, the presence that we have felt in this service already today. God, what we experienced this morning, we want to say thank you. Father, again, our mouths are open and we say thank you for all that you have done. Now, Lord, for just a few minutes, I pray that as we study your Word, Father, I pray that the truth would penetrate our hearts. Lord, that your Word would stand alone. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that, God, you would be magnified above all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, normally, if you'll notice when I preach, I love to give a little historical idea of where you are. I want you to have in context what's happening, who's writing, and who's being written to. James is absolutely one of my favorite books for the time in which we are living. It is so relevant for each and every Christian, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you have been saved, there is great truth for every man, every woman, every young adult in the building or watching online. There's a great study in these chapters. James, if you're making notes tonight, just a few highlights that you might want to stick in your back of your Bible. We'll come back to these eventually. But James is the son of Joseph and Mary. So this would be the half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one thing to keep in mind that is of interest is that James did not follow his half-brother while Jesus was here on earth. He was not a follower of Christ while Christ's earthly ministry was taking place. But James is known now as he is writing to be the moderator of Jerusalem's church. Jerusalem Baptist Church, he's the moderator, if you will, and he's even called a pillar of that church by the Apostle Paul. And I love James. I love all that is here in James. And even though James did not follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his half-brother, and even though while Jesus was here on his earthly ministry, James did not accept him as Lord and Savior, as Messiah. It is evident that Jesus had great influence 
on his brother. I'm going to run this rabbit. I normally try not to run rabbits, but let that encourage you that if you are living out your faith in front of people who are lost or people who are away from God, that it may be when you're in the grave in heaven that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the groundwork that you laid in your testimony was vital to them coming to saving knowledge of Christ. So Jesus obviously had influence on his earthly half-brother, and it's a deep influence. James had not been a follower of Christ, but eventually did after seeing the resurrected body of Jesus. He uh, then became a joint heir with his earthly half-brother and his Lord and Savior. Now, you can read these 108 verses that are found in James And really, if you read James, all five chapters, if you go to James and read it in its entirety, and then you go back to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, you will find striking, uh, real, real uh, resemblance, almost parallel how the Sermon on the Mount and James are written. The book of James, I think it's over 30 times that nature is used by James to explain something or to highlight something. James and Jesus, in the way that they presented things, if you'll go back to Matthew 5, 6, 7, read through there, there are great parallels here. Again, that's just a rabbit that I wanted to run for just a few minutes. But there are in these few chapters, 108 verses, but in the 108 verses, there are 54 commandments. James was speaking here with great authority. He had been elevated in the church. God had given him position. People listened to him. He had influence. And then it comes to a place where the apostle Paul calls him a pillar of the church. So now James is not only accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now he is not only a pillar in the church, but he has a seat at the council of Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the council of Jerusalem, it's really important to you and me as Gentiles. This is a council that met in 49 AD. And the reason it's so significant is this is where there was a lot of talk about whether the Gentiles should be witnessed to. In other words, that this Christ who had come and died and resurrected himself, that the message, the gospel, the good news, of Jesus would not just go to the Jewish people, but that it would come to you and I, to the Gentiles for us to be grafted in. And James had come to such a place of predominance in the church that he had a seat at the table at this council. So you get a feeling for who's writing this book this letter. I want you to really understand who this man is. This is someone who who was full of doubt, who was uh, no doubt not easy to talk to. He did not accept his brother for who he was, his half brother. It was after he had seen his resurrected body that he was then persuaded that this is the Christ, this is Messiah. And we know that this was written Early on in the context of the New Testament, I believe personally that this is possibly the first 
book, one of the first books written in the New Testament in timeline because he does not mention at one point a Gentile in this epistle. So that tells me it was not on his mind at that time. He speaks a lot to Jewish believers, people who had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who were Jews who had been converted, but does not mention Gentiles by name. So if the council of Jerusalem was 49 AD, this is probably written somewhere between 45 and 48 AD, making it one of the first books written chronologically in the New Testament. So you've got this important man who the Apostle Paul has called a pillar of the church, and he is writing some real truth here that still applies to the church of Jesus Christ in 2021. Real, true, beautiful nuggets of knowledge that is convicting to the core as a believer. There is real meat here. There is real sustenance here. There is an opportunity for us to change our lives and what's found here in James chapter 3. So James chapter 3, we've, we've kind of skipped over 1 and 2. We're going to dive right into 3. And there is one word that takes over the theme of James chapter 3. And that word is the tongue. The tongue. The muscle that lives inside your mouth. This will probably be the only time in history that the pastor behind the pulpit will tell you to stick out your tongue. But if you would please so kindly stick out your tongue. Everybody here tonight, I hope and pray, has a tongue in your mouth. So we have here one part, one small part of the body that takes up an entire 18 verses quite a big of a chunk of this epistle when you put it into the context that there are only 108 verses and 18 of them speak to the tongue, there's something for us to pay attention to. My heart is here, and this has come from a place of personal growth and personal reading and personal study, is that I truly want authentic Christianity. Let me say that again. Deep in my heart, I desire authentic, real Christianity, real faith, real semblance to the Savior whom I claim. That it's not just lip service, but that I truly embark on a journey in my sanctification to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that every single day, my heart's desire is I want to be less like Winston and more like Jesus every day. That's where I am personally. I'm sharing that with you from a place of authenticity that I truly want to be an authentic Christian. And the first step tonight that we're gonna just drive by and explore, the first step to authentic Christianity, if you truly want to embrace Jesus Christ, you must submit yourself to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in your life to tame the tongue, to tame the tongue, authentic Christianity, taming the tongue. James chapter three, verse one through 18 will be brief in these verses, but I do want to read all 18. My brethren, 
Note that before we go any further, underline that, put it in your mind, listen to who James is speaking to. He's not talking to lost people. You must keep that in context throughout this entire chapter. James, this pillar of the church, is speaking to his brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, my brethren, being not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm. With us, however, the governor listeth. That means wherever the pilot of the ship wants it to go. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Verse number six. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. Pay close attention. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that's a lot. Those are 18 verses. You need to go back and read them, highlight them, circle words as you read. But the point is in those 18 verses, this first truth you must understand is that your tongue is a very, very powerful weapon. 
and apart from the redeeming work of Christ working in your heart according to God's word, your tongue apart from Christ will only do harm and cause destruction, not only in your life, but in the life of people around you. The tongue is a weapon. And time and again, scriptures address the tongue. This is not the first time words, the mouth, the tongue are dealt with in scripture. But James devotes this entire chapter to controlling the tongue. And when we consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 34, we see now why the tongue is given such extensive treatment and why it's so important that as Christians, we learn that the indicator of what's in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths. The greatest indicator of who you are and what you are deep down inside when nobody is looking is exactly what comes out of your mouth. Every word that comes out of your mouth goes, if you will, into a blank canvas and paints a small section of the picture of who you are. Every single word that comes out of your mouth, it paints a picture of who you are on the inside. And for us as Christians, if we're truly going to embrace authentic Christianity, and if Christianity isn't just a social media facade, and that this is a real experience, a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then we must bring into subjection every thought and every word that comes out of our mouths. It says more about what's on the inside than your actions will ever do. Your words bring power. Your words destroy. Your words can uplift and build. And according to God's word, it can destroy the entire ship. The tongue is a powerful, powerful tool. And for us as Christians, we must bring it unto subjection. Our words, ladies and gentlemen, give us away. What comes out of our mouths gives us away. You can have on a suit and a tie and church shoes and church cologne and church hair gel and church hairspray and all the church stuff that you wear. But if what comes out of your mouth does not match what would come out of Jesus' mouth, then there is something lacking in the authenticity of your faith. Then it just becomes a show that you're trying to convince people around you to buy and to believe. But what comes out of your heart, what comes out of your mouth, it reveals so much about who we really are. Our words give us away. Your tongue has such great power. And according to God's word, by nature... Think about this, by nature, your tongue is hypocritical. Our tongues, without the redeeming work of Christ in our lives, are hypocritical. It said, out of the same mouth come cursing and blessing. That's a hypocritical part of your body. And it's a dangerous part of your body that must be seen as a powerful, powerful tool. And the truth is, most people want to be heard. 
And what a better way to be heard as a believer than to be a teacher of the gospel, to be a Sunday school teacher, to work in Awanas, to work with young people. Teaching a Sunday school class on this property has great responsibility because of the words that are coming out of your mouth as a teacher of God's word. Your words as a parent will literally shape who your children become. Your words as a grandparent can be the one thing that that child will hold on to for a lifetime because it might be the only truth they ever really heard. Words are powerful and the instrument is the tongue. If you're making notes, control the tongue, control the man. Control the tongue, control the man. If one can control their tongue, then they will be able to control the rest of the body as well. In verse number three, he used the horse as an example. What do we do to a horse to get it to obey us? We put a bit in its mouth and we, when we want it to go left, we pull left. And when we want it to go right, we pull right. And when we want it to stop, we pull back. It's the same principle. Your tongue by nature will be a dangerous weapon unless brought into the subjection of Christ. So that everything that comes out of your mouth is filtered through what Jesus would want you to say and in the tone in which you're saying it. Your words have such power. Your tongue has such control over your life. That's why he said that if any man would not offend, he would be a perfect man. We know that that man does not exist. In other words, everybody in the room has the same problem. This is not a white people problem or a black people problem or a men problem, although we do a really, really good job, men, oh my, of letting our tongues get us into a bind. Some would even say a hole. And then we sometimes dig the hole even deeper. I am speaking from personal experience. But this is an everybody problem. This is why we go back so many times in our study to the fact that yes, you are saved, but your nature, your Adamic nature that goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden at its best is wicked and vile and it is a constant struggle. It is a constant war on the inside raging against the good of the Holy Spirit that indwells you and the desire and the will of your flesh. It's a war. And a lot of the time, the war is coming out of my mouth. If my emotions get the best of me, you'll know it because my mouth is telling you. If I'm upset, I might be able to hide it for a minute, but eventually my body language is going to shift and then my words are going to change to let you know that I'm upset. A lot of the war, a lot of the struggle, and listen very carefully, this isn't fun preaching, but a lot of the strife internally amongst a church and Christian brothers and sisters comes from the mouth. Words. If you can control the tongue, you can control the whole body. And if you can control the whole body, you can bring it into subjection to Christ more and more every day. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Every single day, I have to bring my tongue into subjection. That it does not get me somewhere I do not want to be. 
mainly apart from Christ and a good relationship with my heavenly father. Your tongue, your mouth, your words, no matter what your platform is in the church, carries such weight. When a new visitor comes, what's one of the first things that we ask of the volunteers who want to give of their time to do? Open your mouth, use your tongue, speak words, and greet them in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that they're here. And in the same avenue, if someone was to come in and be greeted with nothing but judgment or harsh words or body language and words that are not encouraging, what do you think their experience will be? It'll be negative. It will be hurtful. It could be that they would never even go back to a church ever again because of the tongue in someone's mouth speaking words. There are some people in this building, there are people you have not talked to in decades because of words. There are marriages that split up every single year because someone told a lie and it did damage. My point is the tongue is a great instrument. It is a great tool. It preaches the gospel. It tells your wife and your husband that you love them, your children. It lets them hear the truth out of your mouth. But you and I must understand that if we want authentic Christianity, the tongue must be brought into subjection. He talks about the horse. Verse number four, he talks about a ship. Even though the winds are great, it's the small helm, the littlest part, the smallest part on the ship that steers the entire direction of the boat. And if you are the head of your home or you're in a position of leadership and you have the responsibility of steering the ship, then if you're steering the ship in the wrong way with your words, it's not just you riding on your boat. Your family's on there. Your children are on there. There may be even members of this congregation who look to you as a leader, a spiritual leader, and your words matter. Big things can come from your tiny, tiny tongue. Verse number five, it's illustrated as a wildfire. Look what it says. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. If you've ever gone into the woods of Western North Carolina into the laurel thickets and you've ever decided to shoot fireworks or have a campfire on a windy day and you watch one single ember from your campfire hit that laurel thicket, you will understand exactly what verse number five is talking about. One small ember pops out of your fireplace or your campfire or your Roman candle. And the next thing you know, the whole mountain is on fire. Why? Because a small spark hit that oil in that laurel thicket that is so flammable that the moment they met, it was almost like an explosion. And before you realize it, the whole mountain is ablaze. You're calling 911, but you don't have any service. That's kind of like what words can do. I think we've all put ourselves in those predicaments and situations. Boy, I wish I would not have said that. Some of us did it as recently as today. But authentic Christianity, to be a real Christian, a real follower of Jesus Christ, your tongue must come unto. 
to subjection. Your humanity alone, this is so important for you to understand. Your humanity alone cannot control the tongue. Do you hear what I said? Your humanity, your own ability, you'll never be able to control your tongue. That is why prayer, that is why reading God's word will always be an issue for believers. It is vital that we rely on the wisdom imparted to us from God to make it through this. And that he would do something with our mouths. Verse number six, it talks again about this fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. You know what he's saying? Your tongue without the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in your life is pure wickedness. I want to give you this word that he's using for hell here specifically. This is a translation out of Greek. And the word specifically is Gehenna or the valley of Hinnom. And in Christ's time, this valley, it lays southwest. We go there when we go to Jerusalem. If you've ever done that walk up the Kidron Valley, we go back up to the Mount of Olives. You have seen this before. But in this time, this valley served as the city dump. It's where all the trash and nasty went to reside. And for them to keep that under control, underneath all that trash, underneath all that nasty, was a constant, continual, smoldering fire. And not only is he referring to it as the vileness of that city dump, pure wickedness, but he is also referring to it as hell itself. Because hell conjures up not only just the place, but the satanic power that will reside in hell forever. He is comparing the human tongue without intervention of Jesus Christ as a satanic, demonic evil that must come under the subjection. That's powerful. It must come under subjection. Hellfire, demonic presence, authentic Christianity absolutely demands that we take personal responsibility for our words. You can say the words and then try to blame somebody later, but it doesn't work out too good. You can say the words in a tone and then try your best later on to dial it back in. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Husbands, every husband in this room say amen right now. Amen. We have all been there. It was probably over laundry or you forgot to plug in the crock pot. I'm again going from personal experience here. And something came out of my mouth that, oh, if I could have that back. I wouldn't say it, or I wouldn't say it like that. A lot of this is about the motivation and the intention of your heart. It's one thing to say no. It's another to say no. Your tongue is a weapon of mass destruction that must be kept under guard. And you need to beg God the Holy Spirit to have the launch codes that only he knows. Our words can split a church in half. Our words 
can hurt someone so bad, they never come back in the door. Words can cause such pain that someone who's been married for 30 years calls a lawyer after a bad fight at home and says it's over. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I say your words are a powerful tool and that at its root is hypocritical. There was a illustration. I'm going down here to get it. I was in first grade. Miss Shreve was my teacher at Asheville Christian Academy over at the old school in East Asheville. And on a Tuesday, we had a chapel. And how old are you in the first grade? Six? That's probably about right, 96. So this is 25 plus years old, this illustration, but I still remember it to this day. What's this in my hand? Toothpaste. So for just a moment, I want you to pretend that you are this bottle of toothpaste, this tube of toothpaste. And right here, this little hole at the, this end of the tube, that's your mouth. And that's my mouth. That little tube represents you and it represents me. And the paste inside represents our words, the things that we say. And if you'll notice, without hardly any effort, it is so easy. Look how easy that was to get a word out. Look, it's out. And if you'll notice, that was no effort. It's so easy that even a child, think about it, can get words out. It's easy. It takes almost no effort whatsoever. A little pace came out. Words came out of my mouth. What you've got to remember is that for you to brush your teeth with this toothpaste, a few things have to happen. You have to know exactly when the toothpaste is needed in the process. You have to know exactly how much to squeeze out on your brush. You have to know that once there is enough or sufficient on the brush, it's time to stop squeezing back off and put it away. And with words, sometimes we get things out of sequence. And it's like being in the shower with shampoo in your hand, ready to wash your hair, and you're squeezing out toothpaste. It's out of sequence. And sometimes our words, although they may be good in intention, you really want to help somebody, but it's out of sequence. That was not the time to say the good thing. That's why it is so vital that I come out of the equation. And it may even sound silly, but to say, Lord, before I say anything to that lady or to that man, Father, would you lead and guide my words? I don't want to hurt them. It may be that the right words, you know them, but it's out of sequence. Another thing that you'll notice about this, not only the ease, not only the sequence that's needed, but let's say you get out all those words in a heated argument. I mean, you're just, oh, oh yes, more, more words. It's vile. You're mad, you're upset, you know you're in the right, and you're going to squeeze out every drop of effort that you can. All the words you know to apply in this situation. And then the Holy Spirit of God checks you. 
And he goes, why did you say all of that to my child? Remember, if you're talking to another brother, another sister in Christ, you're talking to his child. See how easy it was to get it all out? Don't you feel better? You got the words out. It wasn't hard to get out and it's all here. But here's the thing that you have to remember. I don't care how long you've been brushing your teeth. I don't care how long you've been buying toothpaste. I don't care how intricate you are in your toothbrushing process. There is no way for you to get back what you just squirted out of that tube. It's out. It's there. You can clean this up. I can stick this in here and try my best. Go back in there, toothpaste. It's not, look what's happening. I'm just making more of a mess. I let my emotion get the best of me. I let my feelings take over. I asked the Holy Spirit to take a back seat. I got out the words and now I'm trying to clean up the mess. Go back in there. I didn't mean to say that. It's too late. And now all you're doing is making a terrible mess. You're just making it worse. That's why before you even get there, it is vital that your tongue has come under subjection and that you are speaking from a heart of godly wisdom and not earthly wisdom. That's how this finishes out the key to this, this whole process. And really it goes back to the hypocrisy of the tongue. And really if James left us where we were, that your tongue is evil and wicked and unruly and it's going to start a fire, it would be a little bit discouraging to end there. But thank God there's hope for us all here tonight. But you have to understand the hypocrisy of the tongue. The powerful, powerful tongue, it can be used for good. Hopefully tonight, the words being preached from this pulpit are for good. The tongue is not all evil, but it does contain deadly poison and no man can stop it. That powerful tongue, apart from redemption, apart from Christ, will do nothing but tear down and destroy. And really, when you speak and you put your words in the context of who you are and who Jesus is, it points to the dire need of your sanctification. You desperately need God to work in your life. He goes on in verse number 9 and 10. We won't go through all this tonight, but he talks about how the tongue can worship and curse. He's not saying that these people aren't saved. He's wanting them to wake up. He's wanting them to realize what they're doing and to bring their tongue under subjection. And really, this tongue, for us as Christians, think about where we are in culture. Think about where we are, our reality, even as a city, as a county. How are people going to know? Think about this. How are people going to know that you are a follower of Christ at your workplace, where you go to school, even where you go to church? It's going to be your words, what you say to them, and then how your actions follow your words. Redeeming speech can only come from godly wisdom. There's nothing I can give you from Winston that will keep you from the pain inflicted by a tongue that's out of control. But God can. Know this about worldly wisdom. And we'll close with this because our world is full of it and we need to know. Anything that shows itself in essence, words, to be bitter, 
to be envious, to be unspiritual, to be selfish. Those words represent worldly wisdom that at the end of the day, the scary part is, is demonic. That's why he used that word hell in verse number six. But godly wisdom and godly words will always be characterized by this. This is how you can tell. Godly wisdom that produces godly words will always be characterized by purity and peacefulness. Purity and peacefulness. It leads to peace. We say, well, when you get up and preach a salvation message and you talk about the despair and the horrible, horrible thing called hell, how does that bring peace? Because there's hope at the end of that message. The truth will always bring peace. It may not be easy to get there, but the truth will always bring peace. It will always bring hope. And there's nothing I can do in my own power tonight to guard my words like what God can do in my heart, a true work of authentic faith that every word that I say, that it runs through the filter of would Jesus say this at this time, at this place, and in this tone? Do I have the right to say what I'm getting ready to say? What is the intention and the motivation of me saying what I'm getting ready to say? Is it to bring peace? Is it to bring hope? Is it to speak love and truth into the situation? Or is it to set another fire and watch it burn? And tonight, in conclusion, our speech truly is governed by the wisdom that's in our hearts. And this is part of Christian maturity you can always tell a mature Christian by their words, by their wisdom, and by their actions. And if we were to reveal tonight everything that I said in the past week, there are places I promise you I would want to go back and change what I said. But I promise you this, I have a desire deep in my heart to be different than I was yesterday. To bring it deeper and deeper under the subjection of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, my question to you, Trinity, to this body of believers, just like James was writing to these early churches, what is the condition of your mouth? What is coming out of your mouth when no one from your church community is listening? What is coming out of your mouth to your spouse when the door is closed at home? Is it to bring peace is it to bring hope? Is it to encourage? If it's not, the Bible says it's a demonic activity. And when you put that into context, I promise you it will make you think about what you say. The Holy Spirit of God will help us in this. That's the part of this that we can depend on is that he is faithful to impart wisdom liberally to those who ask in his will. And so tonight, all of us, as we close this Bible study, can say, Lord, I want to be more like you. I need more godly wisdom. Control the words coming out of my mouth and give my heart the wisdom it needs to say what needs to be said at the right time, at the right place, and to the right person. Authentic Christianity, taming the tongue, 
and bringing it under subjection to the Holy Spirit of God. Father, we love you. Thank you for the truth in your word. Thank you that you are able to penetrate our hearts. God, our motivations and our intentions. Father, you're able to persuade people. And Father, tonight as the Holy Spirit of God searches our hearts, God, our intentions, our motivations, our wisdom. God, if it be earthly wisdom in which we are operating, Father, I pray that you would show us the error of our ways. Father, I pray that we would embrace godly wisdom in our lives. And Father, that you would bridle my mouth with a bit controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. God, control my mouth. God, use my mouth as an instrument to bring you honor and glory. Father, forgive me for where I choose not to open my mouth and give you honor and glory. Father, my prayer, my heart's cry tonight is that my mouth would be more like Jesus tomorrow than it was today. God, help me to die to self. I want to decrease more and more and more. Push down my pride. Push down my carnal desire. Give me godly wisdom and Holy Spirit control my mouth. God, I pray that that would be our prayer tonight as a church. That would we would be known in our community as a church that speaks love with godly wisdom. A church that speaks, that brings hope and peace to a world full of chaos and sin and despair. God, change our church tonight through this simple study in the book of James. We give you all these things and we ask you tonight to change us. We do not want to leave the same way we came. Thank you for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Help us to be more like him in all that we say and all that we do.